build a real business. Focus on the fundamentals of the actual business. And that's not always fun. It's not always easy. In fact, company building is really hard. Welcome to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast, where founders and business leaders talk about how they built a company culture that is so incredible, their employees brag about it. Our show aims to inspire you as you build a Bragworthy culture of your own. Culture building is philosophical and practical, and you'll find both discussed here. Grab a pen and a notebook. We're about to drop some knowledge. This episode is brought to you by Fringe, the number one employee lifestyle and fringe benefits platform. With Fringe, you can empower employees with lifestyle benefits that can be personalized to reduce stress, give back time, and spark joy. Fringe, benefits for life. Contact us and find out more at fringe.us. Here's your host, Cassandra Rose. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bragworthy Culture Podcast. I am beyond excited to be joined by Michael Katz today. Michael, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm really, really excited. I've taken over host duties, my name being Cassandra Rose, head of people here at Fringe recently. And so it's been a joy to be able to meet with people leaders like yourself who are trailblazing in a lot of ways not just in the tech space, but in the startup space. So really into the conversation we're going to have today. So tell us a little bit about yourself and then tell us more about your organization and Particle. Well, I am one of the co-founders and the CEO here at MParticle. This is the second company that I've started. I live in New York City with my wife, a son, and two dogs. I spent a lot of time with my son and building the company. Somebody asked me, this is probably like a month or so ago, like, hey, what hobbies do you have? Well, I have a six and a half year old son and a nine year old startup. What else am I supposed to do (laughs) here? I'm all in on MParticle and being the best dad to my son that I can possibly be. Awesome. But also being a New Yorker, my understanding is you're a native New Yorker. I'm originally from Boston. New York is home. I hate New York sports, so sports allegiances will never oh, change. No, Michael. This conversation <laughs> was going well until this moment. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah. I'm a diehard Boston sports fan. Very, very cool. Okay. Because I was going to say, living in New York City, you have Broadway at your fingertips, amazing restaurants. I'm sure outside of your two babies, truly, uh, you do yeah. find some time, some downtime for those things. For sure. Absolutely. All work and no play makes me not so fun. Yeah, I'm sure as for myself. So M particle, what I thought was interesting was your tagline is making business personal. So tell us about what M particle does and how it makes that personal. Well, if we step back, the way that brands are built today is very different than how brands were built in the 80s and 90s and maybe like early 2000s, where it was all about the media plan. You create a product and then it's like a media blitz, like a bunch of commercials across all forms of like broadcast media. And it's like in your face until you buy it. Nowadays, brands are built on the quality of the customer experience. It's actually the product which defines the brand. The expectations that have been set over the course of the past decade or so are that the experiences should be relevant and personalized and adaptive. And what underpins that is customer data, the artifact that is created as a result of people interacting with companies' digital products. And the premise of MParticle is to help 
our customers make business personal and to solve the underlying data challenges, which may inhibit closer connections with their customers. We were an ecosystem of companies where things are constantly in flux. There's no shortage of challenges. New vendors, new laws, new policies, technology changes, all those things. So things are kind of in this like constant state of flux and how you navigate those challenges ultimately dictates how successful you can be in terms of delivering those personalized, relevant, adaptive experiences. You can think about us as the plumbing that makes all of the operational challenges just much simpler. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Just hearing what you're describing to be your company, I'm not really in the space, but I've heard things of like cookies going away. So when I'm up in the middle of the night shopping for boots where I should be sleeping, that boot follows me the rest of the day. And I used to think, oh, that's just the universe telling me I need to buy it. So can you talk about how that kind of impacts some of the work that you're doing and what you're trying to help usher in in the next revolution of the internet and how customer data is built? Yeah, absolutely. And that's so core to the original vision behind MParticle, because I came out of that advertising technology world, which all of the tracking, targeting, personalization was based on uh, cookies, which back in the early 2000s into probably like 2012, 13 was the, the main means to be able to provide relevant targeted experiences versus just a spray and pray approach. But what we saw was that the world was changing. We didn't have to look much further than like our own behaviors as consumers to know that we were spending much more time on our phones and more specifically within apps than we were on the web and doing it like in a kind of more of a desktop form factor. In 2013, what we saw was that total time spent on mobile finally eclipsed the total time spent on like desktop. We felt like that platform shift would create a really important opportunity for us to help companies that needed to modernize their approach to how they deployed their data, their customer data, their first party data. It's referred to the same thing as kind of referred to itself in like a bunch of different ways. It was to help modernize the approach to building like a better data foundation, especially given the fact that when we looked even beyond mobile into connected TVs, which were in its infancy and a number of like connected devices, there really was no browser. It was all app-based environments and cookies were an advent of the web browser felt like that was eventually going to go away. And we also felt as time passed, as a generation of people who grew up using the internet started to realize like, hey, the things that happen are not random. They're not random acts of the universe where you have the ad following you around isn't just by happenstance, but there's a very deterministic approach behind that privacy and the demand for consumer privacy and control and consumer choice would become much more important. We architected that all into the earliest version of the platform. You know, the, the interesting thing is the things that we set out to do at the onset of MParticle, it's very much still the same things that we're doing today. Like we didn't have this like massive pivot where we were doing one thing and had to evolve into another thing. We made a number of bets and we felt like if those bets played out, we could build a really big company. And fortunately for us, the vast majority of the bets that we needed to play out have. 
here we are today, where the category that didn't even exist when we started the business is now this like massive multi-billion dollar space that I think, according to some of the latest analyst research, is probably like $30 billion market opportunity or so. It's massive. $30 billion. That's going to stay with me for the rest of the day. <laughs> what I find interesting about founder types is that you're able to see around the curve. You're able to see the future. In 2013, you're like, hey, this is a massive move and we need to take a bet and do this. I think the next hardest part is getting other people to trust that vision, seeing something that doesn't yet mm. exist in reality. So how did you go from yourself and your founders to employee one through 10 through even maybe 20? That's a good question. We had a bit of an unfair advantage because we had started another company and we had a successful outcome. My last company was a company called Interclick. We took it public in 2009 and then Yahoo bought us in 2011. We created a lot of goodwill within our employee base. It was very easy for us to bring over like our 10 best engineers to start Mparticle. The original idea was easy to socialize among them because they saw the trajectory of InterClick and they wanted to sign up for the next ride. We built for the next 20 or so months. It took us a bit to get into market. And I remember like when we first got into market, there was a lot of confusion around what we were. Were we just like a iteration on top of the legacy type mm. of data platform. At the time, they were called like data management platforms. And they really served a single purpose, which is like to help improve ad targeting. And for us, we felt like not only could we help instantiate a more modern approach to data activation and data governance, but we could apply that across a broader set of, of use cases. What we've commonly said across a number of years is helping democratize access to high quality data. When we first got into market, it was a lot of evangelism. It was a lot of us trying to explain to people that about the cost of problems that they didn't even realize that they had at the time. And I remember, this is 2015, when we first started getting into market, making the rounds, meeting with a bunch of companies. Like We weren't winning deals yet, but after the meetings, talking to my sales rep at the time, saying like, it's starting to click. I think people are starting to get it. I feel the momentum building. And it wasn't much longer after that where we won our first customer. And it's really just about like getting that first domino to fall. It doesn't matter about monetization or like how big the deal is, but people want to know that other people mm -hmm. are using the product. But if you subscribe to Jeffrey Moore's continuum of like technology buyers, we were selling the early adopters, like the visionaries, the people who could see the future and connect the dots. It was a number of companies from SeatGeek to Zappos to Starwood at the time, Spotify, that said, yes, this actually does solve a problem that I've been having a tough time articulating, but has been at the core of a lot of the things that we've been struggling with. And you start to knock down some of these bigger names that a lot of people are familiar with. And then other people start saying, oh, these guys are using you. I respect them. Let's have a conversation. Yeah, I think the tech journey for so many of us is similar. I think Fringe also had a very similar journey with like, hey, we want to get into the benefits space. And people are like, either that's dense or it's boring. But when you think about using benefits that you don't have to be sick, you don't have to be dead <laughs> for it to be mm -hmm. activated. Like, how can we support people now? That really helps to enhance culture. 
So mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit more about, okay, you had goodwill. You already showed that you could be successful. So you had people easily follow you, but then you had to scale. And if you can share how many employees you have and how you thought about your values, which I would love for you to share. I know one of them is optimized to customer value. The one that I found the most interesting was succeed as a team. And I just want to read exactly what that says. Carry your weight, let go of ego and prioritize team success over self-interest, which I think is amazing that you're putting out there. How do you make these values show up every day and attract and retain top talent? Well, where do you want to start? There was a lot. (laughs) There's a lot there. So guide me and I will try to not miss anything. Yeah, sure. If you can just talk to me about how you scaled your organization based on the values that you put together. So our values have evolved. I think that culture and I think values need to evolve. In the earliest days of any company, you are fighting for survival, Mm -hmm. right? You have a hierarchy of needs, like you need food, water, and shelter. You're not thinking about scaling. You're not thinking about optimizing. You're not thinking about necessarily building the systems. It's really just how do I get enough market traction Well, before I run out of money so that I can get to a point where I can have a successful fundraise effectively. And my perspective here is obviously for like venture-backed businesses. My last company was Bootstrapped. We started with $30,000 and we turned that into $270 million outcome. I mean, we raised money like much later on in the journey, but I digress. So the values that we set forth in the very beginning of the company were all just about getting shit done. Get it done and don't worry about the residual impact. Ask for forgiveness, not permission. Just go. And I think that that served us really well in terms of making sure that we got to early product market fit. At some point, and this happens many times along the entire journey, the things that get you from point A to point B may not get you from point B to point C. So the things that maybe once serve you well end up at some point not serving you well, or in some cases may actually hurt you. And so there was an evolution that was really important that needed to happen to, I would say, maybe soften the culture. Because as we started to ascend those hierarchy of needs, it wasn't just about the what, getting what done. It was about the how. How are we going to work together? How are we going to communicate? How are we going to interface? Here's the thing. We can grab 50 different tech companies and everybody's like pretty much going to have the same set of values. They're going to be like articulated in different ways. They all kind of say the same stuff, more or less. The difference is like in how well you integrate those values into the culture. How do you reward certain behaviors? How do you punish other behaviors? Because it's really all about what behaviors do people default to when they think nobody's looking? And values and culture has to be about actions, not just beliefs. Now, obviously, like actions come from beliefs, but you need the 360 degree reinforcement. The set of values that you alluded to are our current set of values But I also think it's reasonable for us to expect more change, probably not in the immediate future or not like in the short term. But if we continue along our trajectory and hopefully become like a multi-billion dollar enterprise that has like real staying power, the things that we're doing now probably won't be in service of the goals when we're billion dollars in revenue. So the things have to continually evolve. 
that's typically how I think about it. I don't think people should necessarily be dogmatic about adhering to a set of values that never change over time. I think it's better to have contradicted yourself and evolved with the times than to be the same person or to be the same company that you were 10 years ago. Clearly you're doing something right because M-Particle has been named one of the best places to work by Cranes three years running. So you are showing up with your values if your people are voting that and you're being recognized by an external party. If you had to choose one thing or one period of time that really exemplified that, what would that be for you? A period of time where we were able to exemplify our values. There's so many, actually. I'm trying to decide between like, is it the little things to highlight? Is it the moments of struggle? Since I think we're squarely out of pandemic at this point, hopefully that's not too controversial of a statement. I think about how we handled the situation in February of 2000 and how we made the call, I think, earlier than most companies to go remote. And we didn't want to be the last company out there to make the necessary change. Like we wanted to get ahead of it. And part of it was like, we, we needed to get ahead of it, obviously, like to protect our employees. But the faster that we could evolve as a company, the better the outcome would be for our customers. In somewhat of a non-obvious way, it was very much like a customer first decision. And so I think that's one of the moments where I was really proud of the team, just in terms of like how fast we were able to react and then also how fast we were able to evolve as a company. And since then, what has been your approach? Because I know some companies have gone hybrid, some are choosing to continue to be remote first, some are like everyone back in office five days a week. So how have you now decided as we exit the pandemic to move forward? Yeah, it's funny. We had small number of like highly vocal employees, which I feel like is always the case, but they were demanding to get back into the office. And this is probably like a year and a half ago. And we felt like if we took the necessary precautions and safety measures, it would be it would be a reasonable thing to do. And then what we found out was that nobody came back. And at first I tried to rationalize. I was like, well, maybe it's a weather thing. It wasn't very nice that month. I think this is April or so of 2021. Maybe like May when like everybody's, the sun is shining and everybody's out, people want to get together. And then it was like, the weather's nice. Why am I going to go to the office? I think that ship had sailed. And by the way, like we had started to hire remotely. At this point, we have employees in almost 30 states here in North America. We're a global company, but people had kind of dispersed. And then we reinforced that with just changes in our hiring practices. Probably three, four months ago, we made the call to just go remote first. So gotten rid of where we are in the process of getting rid of all of our offices in North America. We still have one in London. That's the model that we're going to roll with. And I feel like we may change our minds, but certainly heading into 2023, where I think a lot of people are expecting an economic downturn, if not a recession, making sure that we can maximize investable resources in the things that matter and having an empty office isn't necessarily like the best use of capital. So we're rolling with it. I respect your approach. I think every company and organization needs to decide what's best for its people. And it sounds like it's working out that it's really supporting flexibility for employees. But like you said, a client first focus as well, supporting clients who just need really talented people to execute what you do. So let's stay on this 
quote unquote controversial topic and talk about this looming, if we haven't already entered recession as 2023 rolls on, there have been a lot of layoffs, especially in the tech sector, especially in the startup sector. And I know that you put a post up on LinkedIn, which I thought was very interesting, but really want to hear from you. What are your thoughts around why this is happening? Do you anticipate that this trend will continue? And just in your own opinion, like what are things that other companies either of your size or have been around as long as you, or maybe not as long as you can do to help avoid some of these decisions? As I mentioned in the LinkedIn post, I think that everybody got a little bit too drunk at the party. And really what I mean by that is when interest rates were effectively zero, or in some cases like negative, the cost of capital was really cheap. Historical venture returns made it so that everybody was throwing money everywhere. And it had people confusing actual business success with a successful fundraise. And they're two very different things. And so naturally, as the cost of capital has started to increase, the bar to be able to invest because the expected return has been raised. What that's done is it's forced a lot of companies that weren't actually building real companies to reevaluate the things that they were doing and the way that they were spending money. This is a natural, very healthy reset in these market cycles. I don't know if I can prescribe advice that's going to resonate with everybody, but build a real business. Focus on the fundamentals of the actual business. And that's not always fun. It's not always easy. In fact, company building is really hard. But I think like what we are going to see over the course of the next year is that the real companies are going to separate from the pretenders. I think we're already starting to see it. And the real companies are the ones that have a real business and they're also willing to make the hard trade-offs. And we're hardwired as human beings with a number of biases, which making those trade-offs really hard. There's loss aversion. I don't want to give that thing up that I've been doing. There's a saying that I've heard a number of VCs use, which is like burn is sticky. And what that means when you build an organization, you build a culture around excess, people get used to that. And that's really tough to pull back because then all that people see is like what they don't have anymore instead of paving a healthier path to a more sustainable future. I do think that in aggregate, we are going to continue to see more layoffs. I think we have to. They suck. That was kind of the point of the post. But I feel like without them, the market has just been diluted with a bunch of companies that weren't like actually creating value for really anybody. Mm -hmm. A lot of what you touched upon, I think jarring for some people to hear because I think it can be simplified for people to think, oh, these big companies, they're just cost cutting because this is the easy thing to do. But being in HR for nearly two decades, I can assure most people that laying off someone is never an easy decision. Never. It sucks on both sides. Of course, the person being impacted being the most mm-hmm. important of them. I love the quote that you said, because I've never heard that burn is sticky, that when people are accustomed to a certain level of availability or access to certain things, that is what their expectation, it becomes normalized. But I think your company, just from the outside looking in, has done a great job of providing quality benefits to your people, a quality culture to your people. Is there anything that from your either your benefits package or just the way that your cultural norms go that's interesting or unusual to most companies? 
Something we were discussing earlier was we launched a benefit called paternity leave. And this is more relevant for pre-pandemic times. I'm at home now. looks like you're at home. So with like the kind of flexible work situation, it's a little bit different. But the goal of the program was to reward any employee who adopted a companion animal from a local shelter by giving them a week off to spend time and get that pet acclimated. And part of it was because like we would have a bunch of employees who adopted or bought pets. They'd be too consumed at work with like, oh my God, I wonder what's happening with the animals. It's like, let's just get them situated. I wanted to reward adopting animals rather than buying animals from breeders. And also what really nice thing about this is as news of our paternity leave policy got out, it attracted a bunch of people to apply for jobs. And we saw the folks that were interested in that just had like a greater level of empathy. And being customer first, you need that empathy. You need that compassion. It ended up reinforcing our values in a really nice and probably like unexpected way. I would like to lie and say like, oh yeah, we had it all kind of figured out and it was this calculated <laughs> move. You live and you learn. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And hopefully it inspires others to implement paternity leave uh, for their employees. Great conversation. But as we wind down, you know, one of the things that people are constantly talking about is the future of work. And so one of the things that I like to ask is how are you future proofing your company? How are you helping your current talent to upskill and meet the demands. You already saw around the curve 10 years ago. How are you helping your people to see around the curve 10 years from now? That really is a big part of my job, which is to provide context so that people know where we are going and why. I fundamentally reject the notion of command and control structures. To me, that's not a healthy way of operating. You can do so temporarily, like in times of crisis where like decisions have to be made by a single person and they have to be made fast. But those are more situational. In order to build structural health into any company, you have to think about the system. And the system doesn't work without high quality information traveling throughout the company. And that all starts with me setting proper expectations, also providing as much context as I can. So some of the things that I do focus on the importance of embracing change and not getting stuck into this mode where you hang on to the past. Because as you grow and as you continue to innovate, you're naturally rejecting the old way of doing things. You have to, and that's good. But people don't always necessarily see it that way. I think one of the most important things any CEO can do is build a culture that is comfortable with change to find comfort in the discomfort, if you will. And then we do a monthly all hands with the team. We do a monthly AMA with the executive team. People can submit questions. We create more of a structured forum where the people can share like what's on their mind and the questions get like upvoted and downvoted. I send a weekly email to the company just sharing what's on my mind. I've come to appreciate like a CEO, people are always trying to anticipate what am I thinking? So rather than like have people guess right or wrong, I just share. And no matter where we are going, whether it's from like an organizational perspective, a strategy perspective, an innovation perspective, they should know how I'm thinking about what we're doing now and where we're going in the future. 
Yeah, I think that's all helpful. My last question, just because again, I just think the way that you look at the world is so interesting. Knowing all you know now, this being your second successful venture, what would you have told yourself on day one of starting Imparticle? Read more, probably. (laughs) I've increased the amount that I read pretty steadily over the course of the past number of years. And I feel like it's given me much greater perspective. Because I think if you subscribe to that notion where you're like, you are the byproduct of like the five people that you spend the most amount of time with, by reading a lot and consuming information like at the source, it allows you to learn new mental models and new frameworks and newer ways of thinking that aren't necessarily contained within all of our echo chambers, ultimately. And so that's the main bit of advice. And then just the gentle reminder that like everything will be okay. Cause there are obviously a number of ups and downs throughout any company building journey. And there's moments of stress, but the thing I tend to think about is like, what if you just told yourself that everything was going to be okay? What would actually change? Probably nothing other than your mindset. And that's kind of everything. That's kind of everything. Well, thank you, Michael. This has been insightful. I know our audience members will love this conversation. If they want to get in contact with you, either to learn more about Imparticle and how we can service their needs or just even learn more about you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, I mean, you can go to the website if you're looking for company information. It's www.mparticle.com. Pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Easy to find on Twitter. It's MCATS0630. So hit me up. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. I really, really, truly enjoyed this conversation. Same here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Fringe, the number one employee lifestyle and fringe benefits platform. With Fringe, you can empower employees with lifestyle benefits that can be personalized to reduce stress, give back time, and spark joy. Fringe, benefits for life. Contact us and find out more at fringe.us.